0: All right, well, please remain standing for just a moment. Thank you for coming to be with us as we continue to walk through the book of Luke this morning. Pastor Johnny wonderfully worked through up through past, uh, chapter 5 last week as we heard Luke teaching Theophilus, the recipient of this letter, to forsake the old and embrace the new. God's kingdom has come to the earth in the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus, and well, the Pharisees are having a hard time with that concept because of their hard, unmalleable hearts. We will see our Lord Jesus, unfazed by their resistance, wading into deep waters again in Luke chapter 6. So let's read the text together. There are 11 verses, and um, so here we go. Jesus was going through the grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples picked some heads of wheat, rubbed them in their their hands, and ate them. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is against the law on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry, how he entered into the house of God, took and ate the sacred bread, which is not helpful for any to eat? but the priests alone and gave it to his companions and then he said to them the son of man is lord of the sabbath on another sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was withered notice the detail from Luke there and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him But he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do with Jesus. Hmm. We thank the Lord for his word to us this morning. So please be seated and let's pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus, this morning we celebrate with our brothers and sisters across the centuries and across the globe on a day known as the Lord's day to commemorate your resurrection from the dead we praise you for what you did then and what you're doing now you emptied the tomb that you might fill your people you died that we might live you are still saving today people from every tongue and tribe and nation and ethnicity you're saving atheists, agnostics, Pharisees hard to seize. Legalists and pugilists, we ask you to raise and fill our hearts to you once again this morning. You have formed us, Lord, for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. I tell you the truth. Unless you become as a little child you will not enter the kingdom of God. Those are words from our Lord Jesus. And you know, being like a child is like being open to a world of reality that adults lose the ability to catch. At the, at the beginning of Charles Dickens' novel, A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge is in a hellish place. He's cold, he's hard and he's brutal, like a clam shutting down on its pearl, not wanting to share its treasure with anyone else. Scrooge's inflexible heart has lost the ability to love the transcendent things, like good, goodness and truth and beauty. When Scrooge gained adulthood, he gained cynicism as well. He lost his childlikeness and his ability. For awe and wonder. And today in our text, we'll see a little army of Scrooges called the Pharisees. They are a, a miserable, really, little religious group whose main occupation was to make others as miserable as themselves. Last week, they asked the Lord Jesus why he and his disciples didn't appear as religious as they, and Jesus told them a parable. You may remember. Pastor Johnny talking about this, verse 37, chapter 5, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be filled or spilled. The skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, ah, the old is good. Now, Jesus is not engaging here in chronological snobbery. He's not saying, well, the old needs to be discarded because it's old. He's saying the old needs to be discarded because it's been fulfilled. It has served its purpose. Its expiration date has been met in a person. In other words, guys... I'm inaugurating the new covenant that's been in the text for all these years, but you won't be able to grasp the immensity of it with your old hearts. You will rebel against it. You need the ability, the flexibility of new wineskins, new hearts to be able to catch it. Outward religion, for appearance sake, has never been what pleased the Lord. But inward. Transformation. So I've entitled my sermon "Cardiac Elasticity and the Kingdom of God," and that's not actually a, a misspelling. The Greek word for heart is cardia. kardia, and it refers not to the physical organ, but it's used figuratively in Scripture to refer to the seat of power or the boardroom, you might say of human life in the soul. The board members would consist of the mind, the will, the emotions, the affections. So this morning, let's put on our spiritual stethoscopes and listen closely to the hearts of the Pharisees, of the disciples, of the man with the withered hand, and of our Lord Jesus himself. So if you're ready, let's dive in to chapter 6, verse 1. Now it happened that on a Sabbath, he went through the grain fields and his disciples were picking and eating some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. So two stories today, one of the common denominators in those stories is that we'll be looking at both of them occur on the Sabbath. This is Jesus carrying out his ministry of restoration. Remember the story in Luke chapter 2. Pastor Troy taught on that a couple of months ago. Mary and Joseph are in their temple, in the temple, and they're bringing their eight-day-old Jesus with them. Remember that it's Simeon who comes up to them, and he says to them something very startling, that Jesus, this little eight-year-old boy will accomplish the consolation of Israel. Part of this consolation we see worked out today in Luke 6 was restoring the intent of the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. The basic command for the Sabbath is given in two places, Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy 5. Let me read 20 for you. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work But on the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is within them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and what? He hallowed it and then Deuteronomy 5 is basically the same with this little addendum he said uh, Moses writes you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day so in comparison there notice that the observance of the command is about the same but the reason for remembering the Sabbath is different In Exodus, it's God's creation. In Deuteronomy, it's God's rescue of his people from Egypt. In other words, it's redemption. So creation, redemption. Life then for God's people would be marked, should be marked by a rhythm of six and one which mirrored his activity in creation. While the rest of the world went about their business as usual on the seventh day, God's people were to remember what he had done for them, was doing for them, and would do for them. It was to be as Adam and Eve were enjoying God in the garden pre-fall. And it was on just such a day that Jesus and his disciples were hiking through some grain fields and eating some of it as they passed through. Now, I imagine this would have been a joy-filled time. A merry heart does good like a medicine. I heard somebody out there. The proverb tells us. They were with Jesus. And they were finding that just being around him was medicinal. But here they come. Around the corner and boom. Verse 2. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? In stark contrast to the merry-hearted disciples frolicking in the field with our Savior are the Scrooge-like Pharisees who specialized in making up rules where they didn't exist. I mean, it's easy to be hard on the Pharisees for the misguided zeal. Don't miss what they're doing right here. They're accusing the Lord Jesus, the Creator of heaven and earth, their creator, of breaking God's law. Now Jesus in other places makes it clear what he thinks of them and he didn't spare them the truth. He said that they were pretenders. Woe to you, he says, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside but inwardly you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So how did this group, how did this group drift so far from what God intended? Could they be some of those of whom Jesus said, well, they say the old is good. Good. How did these self-appointed arbiters of truth get to a point where they heaped up 31 categories and multiple subcategories of what you could and could not do on a Sabbath to keep it holy? For example, you couldn't spit on a Sabbath because in doing so you would disturb the dirt and therefore you'd be guilty of plowing. You couldn't even swat a fly on the Sabbath because you'd be guilty of hunting. A woman couldn't look at her reflection in the mirror because she might see a gray hair and pluck it out, which, of course, is doing work. They are so scrupulous about the law that they put a huge hedge around it so that no one would come close to breaking it, but in doing so, they assassinate any joy that one might have in trying to serve the Lord in that way. They were the thieves and robbers who were trying to get to God in through their own door. Self-righteous, self-willed, self-centered accusers of Jesus' disciples trying to scam them out of the freedom won for them by Jesus. In Hebrew, Sabbath means to cease or to desist from work. Ironically, the Pharisees were working very hard on the Sabbath at this moment trying to make sure that Jesus nor his disciples worked on the Sabbath. Why? They simply lacked the cardiac elasticity that Jesus is inaugurating. The ability of the soul to be shaped by the beauty of God's word. Here's an application for us this morning. Left to ourselves, we will inevitably... Truncate God's gospel into something small that we can jump over in our own strength. But in doing so, we cheat ourselves and we dishonor God. So pray. Pray. Plead with the Lord to give you a heart which is able to grasp His glorious and ever expansive gospel. Verse 3. And so Jesus said to them, have you not read this? That must have been a blow to their, their egos. They were the ones who were supposed to know God's word from the front to the back. Have you not read this? What David did when he and those who were with him were hungry, how he entered into the house of God and took the bread of the presentation or presence, which is not permitted to eat except for the priests alone and gave it, ate it and gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I love this. Jesus jumps into the defense of his disciples. You don't hear anything from them. Jesus doesn't give them a chance to speak. He jumps in there and answers them with his word. As you know, accusations can come to us from a myriad of directions they can come from the devil they can come from religious legalists they can come from our own conscience some are valid and some are invalid make no mistake Jesus nor his disciples were guilty of law breaking here there were no golden arches at the time to to drive through for a snack so the golden grains of the field were legal for by to grab a snack on their way through. You just weren't allowed to use a sickle, according to Deuteronomy. You couldn't back your truck up and load it up and pull out. Grab a snack and you go on. It wasn't what they were doing that the Pharisees objected to, but it was the win. It was the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. The legalists had their calendars and their claws out. Jesus defends his followers and appeals to the story in 1 Samuel by showing that human need was more important than religious ritual. David and his men, David was on the run from Saul. They'd gone some time without eating. So Abiathar, the priest, recognizes his spiritual obligation and allows them to eat the bread of the presence in the tabernacle. Jesus' logic here is airtight. If it's okay for David and his boys, it's okay for Jesus and his boys. Jesus doesn't stop there. He wades into the fray a little deeper in verse 5, and he said to them, he said to them, the Lord, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying that he is Lord of their religion. Religion. And that he alone determines the proper use of the day. That what they are trying to find in an endless list of rules can only be found in the Lord of the Sabbath. John Bunyan, the Puritan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress pastor in England in the 1600s wrote this about the human tendency to rely on religious rules to try to please God or to gain God's audience he said run John run the law commands but gives me neither feet nor hands Tis better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly, and it gives me wings. The Sabbath was a mark of national identity for God's people. It sets them apart from the surrounding nations who worked seven days a week just to survive. Israel, though, was supposed to trust that Yahweh would provide for their needs in six days so that they could rest in him on the seventh. It was a marked departure from the unceasing nature of their work in Egypt. And it was also to remind them of his rescue for them from physical bondage. The Pharisees, though, are guilty of trying to return God's people to spiritual bondage. Keep in mind, Jesus is not abolishing the Sabbath here, but restoring it to its original intended function. Meant to be a sanctuary of made of minutes, a temple of time to whet our appetite for the eschaton, for the end times. Not to get us into heaven, but to bring a bit of heaven into us. Another application, when we stand accused, of wrongdoing, real or imagined. Run not to self-imposed standards. Run to Jesus. His word alone is authoritative. His word alone is salvific. His word alone is sufficient for our exoneration and our transformation. Isaiah put it this way, Surely God is my salvation The Lord himself is my strength and my, what? My defense. My defense. We don't hear any comments here from the disciples of Jesus, but I think it's a reasonable conclusion to say that they were simply awestruck at how their Lord Jesus, their rabbi, had dealt with the powerful social elite. Which would have at any other time had them for lunch? Time and experience with Jesus is proportional to an ever growing awe and delight in Him. The more you're around Him, the more you want to be around Him. Let's keep moving. Verse 6. Now it happened then, on another Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there, and his right hand was withered. So the scribes and the Pharisees were watching closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath in order that they might find a reason to accuse him. Wow. <laughs> These men were Scrooge like, right? Hard hearted, bitter brutes who loved their man made laws more than they loved their fellow man. Confrontations like this are more relevant and current than is obvious at first glance. And, and as I studied this out, I, I couldn't get away from the feeling that the unspeakable atrocities that we, we just witnessed occurring in Gaza just a few weeks ago were very similar to this in this way. Who were the aggressors? Hard-hearted men driven by graceless law-based ideologies which reduced their fellow image bearers to subhuman status. The only remedy, my friends, is the gospel. And thankfully, Christ's kingdom was on the move then, and Christ's kingdom is still on the move today. Even, even in situations like that. Even with the Pharisees, we know for sure that one of their brightest and best, Paul, came to Christ and ended up giving up his life for the gospel. He's the one who said, I consider everything as rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything else is rubbish. This guy was an influencer. This guy had power and prestige and privilege. Yet he did the math and concluded that there was no comparison. Everything is rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. So if you sit here and you're listening this morning about the exploits of Jesus and you find your hard heart, maybe softening a little bit towards him. We encourage you to to do the math as Paul did. You will find that knowing Jesus to be a far surpassing pleasure than anything this world has to offer. The Spirit was softening the hearts of some of the Pharisees. not all here's a, a bonus application pray the f- when you read news whether it's just I don't know what your source is I don't watch the news very much anymore I read more of it than I watch and it's sometimes you feel a, a, a bit helpless but you're not God has called his people what as agents of prayer We can't be there necessarily, but our prayers will have an impact as He acts. They are the means for Him to act in those situations. They are the channels of grace that He has appointed. So pray for the conversion of the perpetrators of the atrocities like this for God, hear specifically what you can pray, for God to confront them as he did Paul. He, Paul was confronted by the grace and the power of our Lord Jesus. That's exactly how we pray now. That very thing happened to the man who wrote half of the books in the New Testament. Verse 8, verse 8. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man with the withered hand, get up and stand in the middle so he knows he knows that they are trying to find a reason to accuse him he says get up and stand in the middle he got up and stood there I would too Jesus said to them, I ask you whether it is permitted on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it. Now, we don't hear a lot from the man either, but I, I think it's logical to conclude that this man did not seek the spotlight. In fact, he wanted to stay in the shadows where he was sheltered from potential humiliation the limelight coming out in front of people as Jesus was asking him to would reveal his weaknesses. But Jesus calls him into this uncomfortable position. And Jesus is still doing that for his people today, calling us into positions that we would rather not be in. Jesus intends to bring good out of our difficulties, our good, his glory. So when he calls us out of the darkness, he's calling us into his marvelous light. He's the lifter of our heads. How long had this man been in their midst is a good question to ask. How often had he come to the synagogue hoping to find restoration only to be sent home disappointed again because the religious folks disdained him and probably considered him a sinner like the man born blind. We see their heart in that story. They were experts at dispensing shame. And you know this man had been shamed before. No doubt he had been turned down at the employment agency many times because he couldn't hold out his hand and therefore he couldn't hold a job and therefore he couldn't hold a wife and therefore he couldn't hold... A baby, and therefore he couldn't hold his head up in society, and therefore he lingered as a marginalized person in the shadows. Shame will do that. Shame had done that. But nobody had ever spoken to him with the compassion and authority of Jesus. There was such kindness and yet authority in his voice that the man felt safe. He just knew Jesus wouldn't shame him and so he stood with a vigor that surprised even himself. And so Jesus, in verse 10, after looking around at them all, says to the man, Stretch out your hand, and. Now I want us to, this morning, sit in that moment of tension just for a bit. The tension of that word, and. And feel what this dear man must have felt. The command seemed so simple, and yet so dangerous. Application notice with awe and wonder the tenderness and the toughness of Jesus he's tender toward the outcast he's tough toward the in crowd pray for a heart like this courageous and caring we need people like that The church globally needs men and women like that. I hear some stories like that coming out of Israel. Courage, godly courage and caring, full of tender mercies for those who long for it, full of courage to go contrary to those who misuse their authority. We're still in that and moment. There must have been a doubt. Was he wrong about Jesus? Was this just another cruel episode of humiliation and finger-pointed like he endured so many times before he thought he could hear some snickering in the crowd? Or was that just his imagination? Yet, in that and moment, it seemed as if Jesus was doing Cardiac surgery in his heart, expanding his heart to be able to trust after decades of mistrust. He found his heart believing Jesus. The cynicism and the bitterness was ebbing away. And so, he did so, and his hand was restored. Now, I know some of you this morning are struggling right now believing the Lord in your life in some situation. Cynicism and bitterness are plaguing your heart as well. What His Word would tell us is, is simply believe His Word and Wait. You and I, neither of us know how long that and will be. But you do have Jesus with you in that moment. And he's always proven himself to be enough. This man found himself doing what he'd been commanded to do. For the first time in his life, Life since that childhood accident. His eyes couldn't believe what he was seeing as he heard snapping and popping as the tendons and the ligaments connected with long forgotten bones and muscle and he stretched out his hand toward the one who gave the command. About 350 years later, Augustine, the North African bishop, can't wait to meet him one day, said, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. The Lord had commanded and the Lord had given and now this man is left with a fully functional right hand able to serve the Lord seems that his heart was like the new wineskin and Jesus was pouring in the wine. His heart now had the elasticity to expand with love for Jesus. So how about the rest of them? We don't know about every single one, but as a whole, Verse 11, they, they, my last verse, they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. In Mark's account, parallel passage, in Mark's account, Jesus at this point looks at the Pharisees, remember what it says, with anger. Why? Hardness of heart. He looked at them with anger because of his hardness of heart. They were guilty of taking something good, God's law, and doing something evil with it. Like using a GPS to misguide someone off of a cliff. Or taking a compass to commit murder. They were working hard on the day of rest to cause unrest and make it hard for God's people, his disciples, to enjoy his presence. As they saw the withered hand unfolding before their eyes, it was as if their withered hearts retracted into self-inflicted prisons, full of fury for the one who would dare to break their laws. Irony of ironies, working hard, conspiring to murder on the Sabbath day of rest. The letter of the law kills, the New Testament tells us, but the Spirit gives life. Their hearts had no room for elasticity, for the new wine, for the new covenant that Jesus was inaugurating. And I hope that we feel the tragic drama that has unfolded before us in these two scenes on the Sabbath this morning. Self-righteousness denies the need for the saving, enabling grace of our Lord Jesus. Self-righteousness embraces the cruelest of lies. That a person can be righteous by keeping the law but if that were true there would be no need for the Christmas season there's no need for a savior to come into the world for the birth the life the death and the resurrection of God himself our Lord Jesus there's no need for that there's no need for his works and you know we're we're saved by works right? right? we we are saved by works just not ours by the works of the lord jesus so as we wrap up this morning with a text that i never would have chosen for myself but has but has proven itself to be a blessing What are some practical implications of the Sabbath day for us as Christians? So two questions for you to discuss in your community groups. Sometimes these kind of discussions produce more heat than light, but I trust that that won't be the case uh, with you guys. First, why do Christians now meet on the first day of the week rather than on the seventh? A little hint, has nothing to do with Constantine's edict in 321 AD. The church was already meeting when he did that, made that edict. So here are some talking points for your groups. Christ hallowed this day. So why do we meet on the first day? Christ hallowed this day through his resurrection. Look at Hebrews 4.10 for that. Second, the prophecy of Isaiah includes a modified Sabbath observance in the time of the new covenant. See Isaiah sixty-six, twenty-two and 23. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit empowered the church on this day, the first day of the week, not the Sabbath. Acts 2, 1. Fourth, the apostle mentioned in Revelation uh, 1 there, that there is now such a thing as the Lord's Day. I was in the spirit when, on the Lord's day, John says. Fifthly, the apostles have set a pattern for us in meeting on this day. See Acts 20 and 1 Corinthians sixteen too. It's been said that the Sabbath is a reminder of the completion of the old creation, while the Lord's day is a reminder of the finished work in the new creation. Application, because our hearts are idle factories, man, that's true, isn't it? We're always churning out things to trust in other than God's word for our justification before him. Because our hearts are idle factories and because we have so many distractions vying for our affections during the week, Rather, regular rhythms of gospel infusions are crucial to the health of God's people. So, make the weekly gathering with your brothers and sisters in Christ a priority. Whether you're here in this area or you're on vacation, we always try to find a place where we can go and be with the Lord's people on that day. Richard Baxter, 16th century Puritan writer, one of my favorites, said about the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, he said this, what fitter day to ascend to heaven than on the day that he arose from earth and fully triumphed over death and hell. He says this, use your Sabbaths, Lord's Days, as steps to glory until you have passed them all And there you have arrived. Second CG question. What does the Lord's Day Sabbath now look like for us? What do we do? That was part of my reluctance with this passage. As I consider that question, I think of Paul's words from Galatians five. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. I think we have great latitude. That's how I come out of this study of this portion of Scripture. I thought it might not lead me to this place, but it has. I think we have great, and I I should have known better. I think we have great latitude in how we can work out these two, we see two broad principles, don't we, this morning, in how we can celebrate the Lord's Day? I think we do. We get to walk alongside Jesus in the grain field. Or maybe our life at the moment looks more like a minefield. Nevertheless, we're walking <laughs> with Jesus. We get to eat the bread of His presence, enjoy the freedom of soul that He has purchased for us. The one who has all authority is both a man of sorrows and the one on whom is the oil of gladness. There is no happier person in the world than our Lord Jesus. And he invites us into his presence. Secondly, look upon his face in the sanctuary with his people each Lord's Day. Here he beckons us to stretch out our atrophied arms, our lame legs, our withered hearts he will straighten what is crooked, he will strengthen what is weak and he will and then we will be empowered to relate to those who are outcast and marginalized among us remember his words, it is right to do good on the Sabbath application four or five lost count Oh, I think I had a bonus in there, so this is probably five. Every week, the Sabbath gives us a power counter narrative. The Lord's Day Sabbath says that Jesus is enough, has done enough for his people. He alone can change a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. He can impart gracious elasticity into a hard heart. You know... Even Ebenezer Scrooge is not the man he used to be. When he finds out at the end of the Christmas story, Charles Dickens, which, by the way, Kelly and I saw that a couple of nights ago, I think is a really good picture. I think it's a really good picture of salvation and how God's spirit begins to work in the heart of an unbeliever. When he finds out that tiny Tim, toward the end of the story, may die, he says to Bob Cratchit, his father, who he'd been stingy with for a long, long time. He says to Bob Cratchit, his father, I'll raise your salary, Bob, and endeavor to assist your struggling family. Ebenezer Scrooge is no Scrooge anymore. His heart has been turned toward God and now toward his neighbor. Let's pray. Lord, on this Lord's Day, we are reminded of your word which tells us to watch over our hearts with all diligence Why? Because out of it, out of it flows the issues of life. Our hearts were made by you, O Lord, and they are restless until they find their rest in you. Would that the good news of the gospel finds more space in our hearts today, that our fellowship with you would be deeper and richer and sweeter, and that as a byproduct of that, our care of neighbor would flow out of our greater love and enjoyment of you. For you are the Lord of the Sabbath. You are the Lord of our hearts. Spirit, make more room for the Lord Jesus in our hearts. And everybody said, amen.